This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Concavenator, as well as some dinosaur news. But first, we just want to shout out to our patrons on Patreon. We just got a new patron, so we're up to almost $70 a month. And that's very helpful to us. We're pretty excited. Yeah. And if you'd like to join our growing group of patrons please go to patreon.com slash inodino and check out our new site. So jumping into the news, first is an article published in the journal Nature's Scientific Reports titled The Phylogeny and Evolutionary History of Tyrannosauroid Dinosaurs. And it was written by Stephen L. Broussat and Thomas D. Carr. So... Basically, the goal of this paper was to clarify competing phylogenetic hypotheses about the Tyrannosauroid family tree. And Tyrannosauroids are kind of everything related to Tyrannosaurs in a couple of specific ways, but it includes some of the more distant relatives from the Jurassic all the way up through Tyrannosaurus rex and spanning the entire world. So obviously it's pretty complicated to figure out how they're all related. You have to kind of know where they moved and where they couldn't have moved so you can figure out which ones evolved separately and things like that. And they published a similar article in 2010, but with more than half of the known diversity of tyrannosauroids discovered in the last 10 years, they wanted to do a new analysis with the new findings. So Broussat and Carr believe that their research shows that species in northern and southern western North America, we talked about that before, how North America is split into east and west, were not divided as previously thought, saying, quote, recent discoveries reveal that these dinosaurs were once widely distributed and were mostly small and ecologically marginal until some species developed enormous size during the final 20 million years of the age of dinosaurs, before the end Cretaceous asteroids struck them down in their prime, end quote. So basically, they think for more than 50 million years, the Tyrannosauroids were moving around pretty freely because they were small and they weren't a huge part of the environment. But once they got bigger, they started getting more stuck in places. They ultimately created a tree with all Tyrannosauroidea that can be summarized into three groups. 
The first is a, quote, basal proceratosauridae clad of mostly small-bodied species with elaborate cranial crests from the middle Jurassic early Cretaceous, end quote. And that includes tyrannosauroids like Guanlong. The second is, quote, an intermediate grade of mostly small to mid-sized taxa that lived during the late Jurassic early Cretaceous, end quote. And that includes Juratyrant that was our dinosaur of the day back in episode eight. And the third group, and the one with the most members, is, quote, a derived clad of large-bodied latest Cretaceous apex predators that includes Tyrannosauridae and their very closest relatives, end quote including Albertosaurus and Tyrannosaurus rex. In their analysis, there are a lot of closely related members from the last group from both North America and Asia, which led to their conclusion that T-Rex is likely an Asian migrant that came over to North America. I thought that was especially interesting since I always think of T-Rex as kind of an American dinosaur because of the Hell Creek formation and everything. But with all the animals going back and forth between Asia and North America, it definitely makes sense. Broussat and Carr also mention that they didn't include Nanotyrannus in this study, but saying that, quote, the recent discovery of a nearly complete skeleton of a small-bodied Tyrannosaurid from the latest Cretaceous of Montana may hold the key to solving this debate. However, this specimen is currently unavailable for study, end quote. They say that because it was sold into a private collection and apparently people haven't been able to get their hands on it to research it. If you're interested in looking at where T-Rex came from or other tyrannosauroids, I recommend taking a look at their phylogenetic analysis, which is that family tree structure, and it's also color-coded by region, so it shows some of the overlaps, especially ones that are closely related, meaning that they must have had to move back and forth a little bit between continents. And the article's open access, so you can check it out. Next in the news is an article published in the journal Peer J, titled New Material and Revision of Melanorosaurus Thabanensis, a Basal Sauropodomorph from the Upper, Tri from the upper Triassic of Lesotho. And it was published in the journal Peer J. It was written by Claire Pear de Fabrega and Ronan Alain. They compared two species of Melanorosaurus and reassigned several bones, including a femur, vertebra, forelimb bones, hip bones, and mitotarsals, which were previously assigned to Melanorosaurus, to a new genus, Myrocatenos, and that was largely due to its unique femur. The full name of the reclassified species is Myrocatenos thabanensis. Myrocatenos comes from the Greek for femur animal, obviously in reference to its unique femur, and the species name Thabanensis is carried over from its previous genus, just like we saw with Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus. Either way, it was a unique species. It was just what you called the genus. They say that with this addition to the late Triassic, the total number of late Triassic basal sauropodomorphs is now 26, and seven of them come from southern Africa, and that the femur of this dinosaur is the first to look quote-unquote sauropod-like, and they think it's an important evolutionary piece. They also reviewed the location of the discovery and determined that Myrocatenos is from the late Triassic and not the early Jurassic as it was described before, 
And this change means that there are no known basal sauropodomorphs that survived from the Triassic into the Jurassic. Next up in the news is my new favorite Tumblr page. In honor of the new Titanosaur exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History, the museum has posted a series of texts between the Titanosaur and then its famous blue whale on its Tumblr page. They're all pretty funny, but to give you a taste, the first one reads like this. Hey, blue whale here. Just wanted to say welcome to the museum. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I've been waiting since the 1960s for someone my own size here. Are we the same size? I'm 122 feet long. Yeah, I'm 94 feet. I'm rounding up. Right. There's a few other <laughs> gems. <laughs> I felt, since this is audio only, you can't tell when we're switching back and forth. <laughs> that was some good reading. There's also a funny one where the titanosaur is upset that there's no emoji for a dinosaur and then the whale responds with two separate whale emojis. Which Garrett checked, and yes, there are two different whale emojis. Yeah. And then the titanosaur says, you're a bad friend. Ha 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 ha, I know. Yeah, that's a good page. There's another good one. The titanosaur wants to go to Times Square, and the whale doesn't understand how the titanosaur will get there. And the titanosaur says, the subway, but then realizes it can't fit in the subway. So he asks, how big is a city bike? <laughs> There's another one, I think, in honor of the Super Bowl. The whale says, woohoo, it's Sunday. I'm ready for some football. I love football. Oh, yeah? Who's your team? Barcelona. Wait, are you talking about soccer? It's a soccer emoji. Duh. Where are you even from? Argentina. Oh, right. My bad. <laughs> You could easily spend an hour reading all of these. They're pretty entertaining. Uh, maybe less than an hour, but... Depends how fast you read. Takes some digging to find them. There's a lot of other good things on the Tumblr page, and then a whole section devoted to the Titanosaur, you know, the making of and how they got it, and a few other fun things like a caption contest. Cool. So next in the news, I just want to do a follow-up to last week's news item where we talked about the top 20 dinosaur games. Actually, since we published that one, two of the games that were on the list are on sale. So pretty coincidental, but good timing. Both of them are on Humble Bundle, and one of them is Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon. I mentioned that I bought Far Cry 3, the regular one, and then they added Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon to their weekly bundle. So if you pay more than the average, which right now is about $8.20, you get a whole bunch of games, including Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon for PC. And the monthly bundle, which is kind of a new thing, but the one for March is going to include Ark Survival Evolved, and the whole bundle with lots of other games is only $12, and Ark Survival Evolved is usually like 20 So that's the cheapest place to pick that one up, too. If you're not familiar with Humble Bundle, I'm not sure if I explained it well in the past. It's a website that sells digital copies of video games with a portion of it going to charity. And by default, they keep 20%, they give 65% to the game developers, and then they give 15% to charity, which is actually pretty decent. But you can adjust those amounts to any amounts you want, and you can just give 100% to charity if you want. And the charities change pretty often 
but they tend to be groups like the Red Cross or one called Charity Water that, that tries to get safe drinking water for everybody in the world. They announced about a year ago that they had raised over $50 million for charity in the four years since their inception. So when possible, I like to shop there. It's a pretty good spot. And a lot of times it's actually the cheapest place to get games anyway. So if you want to play either of those games, you should go to HumbleBundle.com and grab them. Now is the time. Yep. I think they're always limited time, and I think it's about a week or so for the Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon, and then a couple more weeks for the March Bundle. There's a new comic miniseries out called Voracious by Marcus Anasso and Jason Murr, and the premise is a man finds a time-traveling diving suit in his late uncle's house in Utah, and it takes him to the Cretaceous period. He imports dinosaurs back to present day and turns them into burgers that he sells at his restaurant. Hmm. There's a little bit more to the story than that, but I didn't want to give too much away. But the comic also includes recipes at the back with a chicken breast as a substitute for the dinosaur meat. Hmm. And according to the artist, the miniseries will turn into a much bigger, crazier story. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, what else they have planned. And next, just a quick mention that last Saturday, the University of Nebraska State Museum held their annual Dinosaurs and Disasters Day, and families were encouraged to attend to learn about Earth through hands-on activities and demonstrations, and they could also bring rocks and fossils for scientists to identify. Cool. Yeah. Would have been cool to see if we had any unidentified fossils. Yeah. And we were in Nebraska. Well, <laughs> details. Next in the news is a traveling exhibit called Dinosaurs in Motion, which just got to Tampa's Museum of Science and Industry. And it's an exhibit that has 14 metal sculptures that all resemble different dinosaurs. Most of them are interactive and you control them kind of like a puppet in one way or another with pulleys and strings or giant springs or sometimes electronics. And the centerpiece is a 44 foot long Tyrannosaurus Rex that you can try to manipulate to get its jaws to snap. And that's a lot harder than it sounds. Sabrina and I saw this exhibit when it was in North Carolina, and I spent a little bit of time trying to get the thing to chomp. And it was pretty difficult. <laughs> you had to kind of time it right. I don't even remember what the controls were like, but yeah, it was the, a little bit complicated. The smaller metal sculptures were much easier yeah. to work with. And the T-Rex is... Since it's 44 feet long and all metal, it's obviously pretty heavy. There's a time-lapse video of the team putting together the big T-Rex at the museum, and we're going to post that on our blog. At the Tampa Museum of Space and Industry, it's going to be there until May 8th, and admission is kind of expensive. It's $23 for adults, $21 for seniors, $19 for kids 6 to 12, and 5 and under are free. So I think that's around what we paid two years ago. North Carolina, yeah. yeah. Two and a half years ago. Yeah, it was around that price. It's definitely worth it if you're a dinosaur enthusiast. It's very unique. Usually you don't get to interact with the big dinosaur sculptures like that. So it's pretty fun. I think we have a picture that you'd take in front of a green screen and we were running from a T-Rex or something. Yes. <laughs> and one more traveling exhibit. There's one in Oshkosh, Wisconsin called Be the Dinosaur. And this one looks like it's probably a lot more fun for kids. It has several video game-like experiences as well as some dinosaur recreations with lots of information around them. 
and it just opened up at the Oshkosh Public Museum and will be open there until May 16th. It looks like the exhibit is included in the price of admission to the museum. I couldn't find any special pricing for that exhibit. And it's a lot cheaper than Dinosaurs in Motion. This one's $7 for adults, $5 for seniors and students, $3.50 for children 6 and up, and the up goes up to 17 and kids 6 and under are free. So if you're in the Milwaukee, Oshkosh, Wisconsin area, you should check it out. If I still live there, I would. <laughs> What a name, Oshkosh. Oshkosh bagosh. <laughs> and last, because Valentine's Day is coming up, on Elite Daily, there is one writer who advocates giving a bouquet of dinosaurs instead of a bouquet of flowers, and I think that's genius. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> I see. <laughs> think Geek sells these dinosaur bouquets for about $40, and they include six plush dinosaurs. There's two of a T-Rex, two of a Triceratops, and two of an Apatosaurus. And because it's pretty funny, here's their official description. Roar! Who says that toys have to be complicated to be fun? Stuffed animals have been around for a long time. They are a classic. Know what else has been around a long time? Or more accurately, or more accurately what has not been around for a long time? dinosaurs give someone the joy of a true classic with this plush dinosaur bouquet this long stem dinosaur bouquet comes complete with two t-rex two triceratops and two apatosaurus you can pop the little plushes off their stems easily and put them back on at will note that these are not breeding pairs nor do they contain viable dinosaur dna <laughs> last thing we need is a tiny plush recreation of jurassic park as a result of one of our products i think that's the first thing we need uh... I don't know if we need the a carnivore. plush version. Oh, the pl oh, that would be fun. <laughs> you just cuddle with them. We've seen Lego versions and cartoon versions. I think it's funny they call them long-stemmed dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. 
Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now on to the dinosaur of the day, concavenator Corcovatus, which was requested by Cesar via Facebook, so thank you. Concavenator is a theropod that lived in the early Cretaceous, and the type species, again, is Concavenator corcovatus, and the name means humpbacked hunter from Cuenca. The fossils were found in 2003, but it wasn't named until 2010, and paleontologists Jose Luis Sanz, Francisco Ortega, and Fernando Escaso found the fossil. The holotype is of a nearly complete articulated skeleton, which is now at the Museo de las Ciencias de Castilla-La Mancha in Spain, and it's on display if you want to see it. It's the most complete carcharodontosaur, and it's the first to show evidence of feathers, or at least something like feathers. They place it as the most basal carcharodontosauridae. But back to the feathers, it had these small bumps on its forelimbs that are thought to be quill knobs. And in birds, quill knobs anchor the roots of the feathers on their wings. Other animals with quill knobs on its forelimbs include theropods, like Velociraptor. They're pretty sure it's feathers or something like feathers because scales do not have follicles. And concavenator's bumps have follicular structures, which means that it had quill knobs and therefore appendages that were feathers or maybe a prequel to feathers. Before concavenator, fossils from Coelurosaurus, which is the theropod group with feathers, showed that birds evolved from dinosaurs, but concavenator was a carcharodontosaurid, not a Coelurosaur, and its last shared common ancestor with Coelurosaurus was something that lived in the Middle Jurassic. The concavenator's quill knobs, therefore, were the first evidence of a theropod dinosaur outside of the Coelurosaur group covered in something other than scales. Back in 2010, This showed that feathers were more widespread among theropods than scientists had thought, and that feathers could appear on larger dinosaurs and not cover an entire body. That's kind of interesting to think how that was only five, six years ago, and we've already come such a long way. Yeah, definitely. Louis Chiap, director of the Dinosaur Institute at the Natural Museum of L.A. County, told Discovery News back in 2010 that concavenator, quote, shows that feathers were not restricted to just small dinosaurs, even if they didn't cover their entire bodies. This fossil offers additional support documenting the dinosaurian ancestry of birds and the claim that birds are living dinosaurs, end quote. So concavenator may have had some sparse protofeathers on its lower arms. No feathers were found with the fossils, so again, we're not entirely sure if it was feathers or something feather-like. And these feathers or feather structures may have helped with thermal control or helped with aerodynamics, not flying, but running or something. However, since the quill knobs are only on its forearms, they were probably just used for display. Not everyone, however, believes that these were actually quill knobs. Darren Nash said that these bumps were irregularly spaced and that many animals have something similar along their intermuscular lines and that these were muscular insertion points. But then Alana Cuesta, Ortega, and Sanz, who described Concavenator in 2010, studied the bumps again and presented their findings at the 2015 meeting of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, where they concluded that the bumps were definitely quill knobs, though it was unusual for them to be on the top surface of the bone. However, they said this can be seen in some modern birds, such as the moorhen. They also found impressions that show that it had wide rectangular scales under its tail and feet. 
and also notable were two tall vertebrae in front of the hips that formed a tall, narrow, pointed crest, possibly a hump on its back. This short but tall hump, or maybe sail, was only on its lower back, so it looked kind of like a dorsal fin. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like when I look at it. And it's easy to imagine it, like, swimming around with it sticking out of the water, like... Yeah, like Jaws. (laughs) I don't know if it swam. No, I know, but just based on the shape of the thing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) If it didn't swim, it would have looked funny. Yeah. That was the kind of, the, the two big things are like, well, it's it's already unusual. It has this hump or its sail, but even more unusual is also the feathers. So for what was a kind of a big deal when they found it. Yeah. So Francisco Ortega said that the hump may have looked similar to humps that we see on some modern cows. <laughs> <laughs> Poor concavenator. Tall neural spines have been found in spinosaurids, carcharodontosaurids, and some tetaneurons before, but not only on the lower back. So, concavenator's back hump or sail function is unclear because it's so limited. (laughs) It may have been used for display, thermal regulation, to store fat, or something else entirely. Beckel spinex has been compared to concavenator, and we've talked about Beckel spinex back in episode 54. And some scientists think that they could be the same genera. They're about the same size, they look alike, they both have this weird hump, but it's hard to know since Beckelspinax, all we know about it is three dorsal vertebrae. Also, Beckelspinax is 10 million years older than Concavenator. Concavenator is about 20 feet or 6 meters long, and it had short, stout claws, and it lived in wetlands. And Concavenator shows that Carcharodontosaurids, which is the group it's in, lived in Europe and the northern continents in addition to South America, Africa, and Australia. Carcharodontosaurids, we've talked a number of times, that type of dinosaur seems to keep popping up. And its name means shark-toothed lizards, and they were carnivorous theropods that Ernst Stromer named in 1931. And the family includes Gigantosaurus, Mapusaurus, Carcharodontosaurus, and Tyrannotitan, who are all about the same size or larger than T-Rex. And Carcharodontosaurids and Spinosaurids were the largest predators in Gondwana in the early and middle Cretaceous. And our fun fact of the day comes partly from, quote, Introduction on Taxonomy, from Wikiversity.org. There are many naming convention suffixes for taxonomy, and taxonomy are the groups like kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. The higher level categories don't have naming conventions with animals, but the lower ones have quite a few. And oftentimes when we quote research, we end up using some of these words, so... Sabrina was just talking about Carcharodontosaurids, and I was talking about Tyrannosauroids. Those seem to be the two most common suffixes, specifically groups of families or a superfamily always ends in oidia, and that's often shortened to oid, and a family always ends in idia, which is often shortened to id. So... Superfamilies are especially useful because most dinosaurs have unique genus, and taking T-Rex, for example, if you're talking about the family Tyrannosauridae, it leaves out a lot of similar dinosaurs, and if we go one up in that phylogenetic taxonomy, you get to order, and the order is Saurischia, which is a huge group, you know, that's half of the dinosaurs, basically, and even the suborder Theropoda is really broad. So 
we end up talking about these super families or the ones that end in oid. And it also helps because it reduces arguments about which specific family a genus is in. So instead, we can just talk about their characteristics. So when we're talking about tyrannosauroids, we're talking about the whole group that are obviously related due to certain bones and where they lived. But you wouldn't be talking about, for instance, carcharodontosaurids. So you can talk about them separately that way. The easier way to remember it is probably if it ends in oid, you're talking about kind of an informal group of lots of dinosaurs. It's not a specific group of dinosaurs. It's a whole group of families. And if it ends in id, you're talking about an individual family. So like a carcharodontosaurid. It's only the group that's in that family and not other ones that are similar or closely related. Interesting. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you feel so inclined to support <laughs> us, then please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Until next time. Good day, I've been